Welcome to Coffee and Divination, a podcast about the arts of obtaining hidden knowledge in changing times. Join me, Joanna Farrar, to chat with experts from around the world on tarot, runes, geomancy, and the many ways divination can help us navigate and plan our paths ahead. So I'm very, very thankful to have Sam back on the program. Um, For those of you who don't know his work, uh, he is a fantastic and renowned geomancer. That is his uh, claim to fame among many others. And uh, he spoke about that in our first podcast interview. Um, He is a scholar of hermetic magic. He is a Lukumi priest. He is a Renaissance man who wears many hats. Uh, He is an author who has published many um, excellent e-books, including his most recent, which is um, Precious Templi. Um, and those are all available for purchase on his website, which is Digital Ambler. Uh, if you don't know the Digital Ambler, you really should check it out. It is a fantastic source of information, and there are so many rabbit holes that you can be pulled down on that wonderful uh, site. So I highly recommend checking it out. And I am really looking forward to our second conversation here today. So thank you, Sam. Thank you. It's great to be back. Um, I, I'm thrilled that your show has been doing so fantastically over the past year like congratulations on that like hands down running a podcast with interviews like this is not easy and you've done amazing work um and gosh that's a litany of praise i don't deserve but thank you (laughs) (laughs) most definitely you do but um so we are here to talk today about a subject that i'm very fascinated with and i i feel like it, it deserves more attention than it gets, although I I think it's gaining in popularity, and you are a good portion of the reason why a lot of people know about it. Um, I read about it on your website as well, which is the the practice of divination by alphabet, um, specifically the Greek alphabet in in this case. Uh, And I believe that, were you the one that coined the term grammatomancy? Pretty sure I did, yes. Okay. So, I so I should not get all the praise. I should, probably shouldn't get most of the praise for spreading the good word of the Greek alphabet oracle. Uh, the Greek alphabet oracle is how it's generally referred to in mm-hmm. the wider community. And I learned about it from the Bibliotheca Arcana website uh, maintained by John Upsopaus. Oh, sorry. Up, Upsopaus. Like, I, I constantly mess up his last name. I feel so bad about that. Um, it's an old website. Like, it's still online. It's still actively updated. Uh, it's a fantastic example of like pre-millennium web design. Like it's simple, it's clean, it's clear. I kind of miss those days. But on that website, uh, John Ossipaus, writing under his old pen name, Apollonius Sophistus, uh, wrote about the Greek alphabet oracle. And he provided his own translation of this uh, series of oracular messages that were originally in Greek. He has since published his own book, uh, The Oracles of Apollo, uh, by John Ossipaus. I have my uh, copy as well. Love that. Exactly. <laughs> and it has, you know, his version of the Greek alphabet oracle, which he has since updated and elaborated on uh, from his original writing on his website. Um, it also includes his own version of the Delphic oracle and so forth using Delphic maxims. But that's, so his website is where I originally got wind of this Greek alphabet oracle as well. And then I looked into it. I looked into his sources. I kind of took it and then kind of elaborated on my own in my own ways in the years and i because i like having greek words sort of thing uh instead of calling it greek alphabet oracle i guess i did maybe term the you coined the term grammatomancy or grammatomantea in greek literally divination by letters because that's what it is divination using the letters of the greek alphabet yeah and that's 
it's a it's a term that, as you said, you you kind of coined in order to speak most specifically about you know the Greek alphabet oracle um, and the ways in which that was used in ancient times and now today. Um, but there are examples of other sort of alphabet oracles as well. I mean, people are familiar with runes um, to a to a degree. The oem um, could be considered that. I mean, they're all things that have letters that are given associations that people divine by. But the Greeks are kind of unique in that we know for a fact that they practice this divination. I mean, there's there's debate on on the runes and other things like that. A lot of it is reconstruction of one kind or another. Exactly. Um, but with the Greeks, we have we have source material. So can you tell us a little bit about how we know about it and, sure. and things like that? So when we say ancient Greeks or ancient Greeks or the ancient Greece as a whole, like we're that's a shorthand. Like in reality, there wasn't a unified ancient Greek people. You know, for one, they had their own empires, they had their own colonies across the entire Aegean and across the Mediterranean more broadly. And each individual you know, city-state, each individual, you know, parent-child relationship between a city and its colony, they all have their own individual cultures, you know, to the point where each individual city-state might have their own calendar, you know, we uh, which is actually honestly a, a astounding thing for us modern people to think about. But really, each individual one, each individual, you know, city-state, land, you know, country had its own separate culture. And we typically think of Athens being the, the center point of it all. In reality, it wasn't, but we do have the most historical data from Athens. You know, size of Athens like the size of like a small county, really, um, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So the Greek alphabet oracle comes from a few archaeological inscriptions of a couple of pillars over in Asia Minor, which today is Turkey, which was also heavily colonized by the Greeks back in the ancient period. And in a certain place, which also had the name Olympus, not to be confused with Olympus in Greece, but this is a separate Olympus uh, in Turkey, what is now Turkey. Um, there's this pillar, which you know is you know it's a little kind of like own little ruins area, but it used to be kind of like a marketplace, a forum kind of area, if I recall correctly. And on this pillar, you had twenty four different inscriptions, each line starting off with a different letter of the Greek alphabet, kind of like an acrostic. And each message was a different oracle. So all you had to do essentially was to have a bowl of pebbles. Each pebble inscribed the different letter of the Greek alphabet. You know, make your petition to the gods, you know, ask your question, reach into the bowl, draw a letter out at random. And then you have a letter on that pebble and you just match that letter to whatever's on the pillar. So for instance, if you drew a letter and let's say you got pi, you know, our modern day P. The oracle associated with that would be Polus Agonas Dionysis Lepse Stephos. Finishing many contests, you will seize the crown. So that would be this oracle associated with Pi, because the first letter of that message is Polus, many. So let's say, you know, oh, I'm really struggling with my crops this year. How am I you know, make a profit out of it? And you drew this oracle. Finishing many contests, you will seize the crown. Try, try again. You know, you may fail again this year. You may have a hard time this year with your crops, but keep trying. You will eventually become successful. You will eventually achieve that crowning glory of having a successful farm. And you could take that approach with all 24 um, oracular messages. And at the core of it, that's all it is. 
you know, unlike runes where each letter stood for a certain symbol uh, or oem similarly, the letters weren't really related to symbols per se, but words that started off a message. And I think that's a crucial difference between, you know, Greek alphabet oracle versus Nordic runes. Mm-hmm. So, sorry. So yeah, so that's that's very interesting. And so we have some record of those those stones that give those oracular statements that someone would be able to reference and. We know that this was probably practiced in other places besides obviously where those ruins were found. Um, what I am interested in knowing is, is there are some, I think there are two sources of this information and sometimes they conflict. Is, is that something that. It's uh, not well attested outside this area. Mm-hmm. Like if it was practiced more broadly throughout Turkey or throughout the Aegean or throughout Greece, we don't have evidence of it. We know it's practiced at least in this tiny little part. And for us modern people who just need another form of divination, that, that's all we really need. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know the exact spread. But yes, there are different versions of the Alphabet Oracle. Largely, they do coincide with more or less the same messages for letters. Mm-hmm. But they do have some differences where one oracular message may be a different statement entirely, so may have a different value of meaning, or it might just be a subtle difference in wording. Uh, but largely, they're kind of the same. Mm-hmm. What is interesting is that there's a related oracle using knuckle bones. Uh, and for that, I would also recommend the book uh, Oracle Bones Divination by Kosas Dervanius, which using that divination, you have four knuckle bones, astragaloi, and you roll them and you get a certain numerical result. One, three, four, four, for instance. One three four 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 one three four four six. You know five knuckle bones, and again on a pillar or like on some text nearby, you would have I think it's fifty six different uh, combinations of knuckle bones, each of which it's not a single statement, but it's more like a paragraph, a series of three or four verses that give you an oracle. What's interesting about this is that many of the statement, the individual sentences in the knuckle bones divination appear in the alphabet divination system. Um, additionally, you could also roll the uh, four knuckle bones. Well, sorry, five knuckle bones. Keeping four or five that mixed up. It's been a day. Um, and you can sum them up. So one, three, four, four, four is what? 16. If you count up the total number of possibilities of rolling five knuckle bones, you can get a total of 24 different results one for each of the Greek letters. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting and weird. I don't know what the scholarship currently says on it. It may be that the Greek alphabet oracle came first and then it was expanded into using knuckle bones, or maybe knuckle bones came first and it was reduced into alphabet oracles. It depends. I'm not entirely certain, but there is definitely a connection. And you can certainly work them both at the same time. I have a set of knuckle bones, which I really enjoy using as divination. Um, it's fantastic. It's what I, it's why I personally prefer when I'm working with, you know, Hermes or the other Greek gods. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously a lot of people nowadays can't go out and just, you know, get a pair of sheep, you know, ritually slaughter them and then, you know, save knuckle bones afterwards. Um, instead, what you can do if you're interested is to get a set of Mo- two sets of Mongolian shagai, which are sheep knuckle bones used for gaming. Uh, just one set has four pieces. You need 
five bones in order to this form divination. So two sets. Mm-hmm. And we have, I remember seeing that there are, there are sculptures and, and things in artwork that, that shows that obviously this was, it was also used for gaming. Like you said, like these, these knuckle bones were very, very common gambling or dice game or things like that. So it's, and we see like this with many today. forms of divination, it can be both. <laughs> we have modern dice divination. We have playing card divination, you know, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting because Hermes is the god of divination and he's the trickster god. Mm-hmm. So he's a god of sortilege, of casting lots, of play- placing bets, of gambling, of gaming. It's all kind of tied in in his own little domain. So it's kind of fascinating to see the connections there. Mm-hmm. So there is also with the Greek letters, I want to go into talking about like dice divination and, and things like that and how you you think about that and what you do with that. Um, but going back to the letters themselves of the Greek alphabet, there's a whole tradition also that that is present around the Greek conceptions of the letters that goes beyond just those 24 statements that we had those, you know, few attestations for in, in Turkey. Um, there's also the, oh, I'm, what is the word? <clears throat> Stoicheia. Yes. Yes. Okay. Or elements. And I believe that breaks down the letters into different categories. And that could take, that takes us spiraling into all sorts of different associations of the different letters with planets and all sorts of other stuff. I was wondering if you could (laughs) help us dive in a little bit to that. So the way I consider it, let's take a, you take a step back and kind of start from a higher level for digging in deeper. A Greek letter can said to have five different parts. You have the name letter, alpha, beta, gamma, and so forth. You have the sound that the letter makes, ah, b, g, d, and so forth. You have the form of the letter, actually what it looks like when you write it out. You have the number associated with that letter, basically numerology. Alpha is one, beta is two, gamma is three, yoda is 10, and so forth. And then you have the symbolism of the letter. You could tie the, the oracular messages into that symbolism letter. There's a whole series of myths and other, you know, folk traditions that associate certain animals or certain plants to certain letters, oftentimes based on what the name of that plant or animal starts with. And you also have Stoicheia. Stoicheia does mean elements, so that's a plural word. So the singular is Stoicheion. And the way I prefer to use the word Stoicheia is in what the elemental, zodiacal, or planetary associations of the letters are. And at this point, it kind of sounds like it's starting to get into Kabbalistic influence. And it kind of is, kind of isn't. kind of raises the question of where, you know, Kabbalah even got the associations to begin with. I'm not going to make such claims anytime soon about which is old or not. But consider in the Greek alphabet, you have seven vowels. Alpha, Epsilon, Eta, Iota, Omicron, Upsilon, and Omega. Even from an ancient time, you know, at least the Roman Empire, if not much older, there's association of matching these seven letters, these seven vowels, to the seven planets. Oftentimes it's Alpha with the Moon, Epsilon with Mercury, Eta with Venus, Yoda with the Sun, and so forth. But that's just seven letters out of the 24 total of the alphabet. And you can divide up letters into different groups. There's different ways based on which author, which philosopher you're reading. I ask for a relatively pardon me, recent way, uh, which is printed in Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy. 
this is kind of a weird mix of mixing classical stuff with Renaissance stuff. And generally I caution against that, but I find that this works really well for me. Um, if you take out the vowels, you have consonants. And you have, uh, what, 17 consonants left after you move the vowels. You can break the 17 consonants out into a group of 12 simple consonants and five complex consonants. A simple consonant is like beta or delta or gamma, a single sound. A complex consonant is like psi or you know, uh, chi, literally a K plus an H sound or a P plus an S sound. So a complex consonant is literally two sounds or a different sound that's not as simple as the rest. Nowadays, like for instance, theta is pronounced th, a single sound. But classically, it was literally a T and an H, a T, a breathy T sound. So it's something to bear in mind. We are kind of approaching the Greek alphabet from a modern standpoint. So we have 12 simple consonants and five complex consonants. Well, the 12 simple consonants, well, there are 12 zodiac signs. So associate them in order. Beta gets associated with Aries, Gamma with Taurus, Delta with Gemini, and so on. The five complex consonants gets associated with the elements. So Theta with Earth, Xi with Water, Chi with Fire, Phi with Air, and Psi with Spirit or Quintessence. I personally don't consider it an element per se, at least not like how Fire, Air, Water, Earth are, but it's not a planet. It's not a zodiac sign. It's effectively for the purpose of the system of divination an element. So by associating the letters we got that with the planets, the zodiac signs, and the elements, we now have a key of plugging these individual letters in to much more cosmic forces. You know, the gods of each sign or planet. You know, the plants and animals associated with each sign or planet or element. And that's where you can really get into some really interesting stuff. For instance, it's common to kind of just do numerology on a name. Like if you have the name Maria, well, you have those five letters, Mu, Alpha, Rho, Yoda, Alpha. You sum them up, you get a number. You can do all sorts of analysis on the number, the sum from the vowels, the sum from the constants, and so forth. But with Stoicaea, you can also associate individual forces to those letters and see, is this person planet dominated? Are they star dominated? Are they element dominated? You know, are they cool or are they hot based on the temperature or the moisture associated with the forces associated with those letters? It gets really deep, really complex, really quickly, but it really profoundly just deepens the whole system, something that's really grand in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you said, those, those numbers break down very evenly and in a way that, that really makes sense. So it's very, it's very easy to associate with, with each of those letters in a way that um, is easy to reference. So that is uh, an excellent system. And it, it harkens back, like you were saying, it also kind of points to the numerology, although that's, uh, the word is not as exact, but like the, you mentioned in one of your posts, how there were the systems of characterizing numbers as letters or associating numbers specifically with letters that was of course part of Hebrew systems as well as the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, try it. Isop, Isopsephi? Yes, Isopsephi. <laughs> or Isopsphia, if you want to use the Greek term. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that word came around, it literally means equal pebble. 
or equal accounting. Mm-hmm. Think of our word calculus. Well, the, word, the root of the word calculus comes from Latin calx, meaning a small pebble. Because back in the day, people did counting or tallying up by allocating little pebbles to certain piles. Same kind of notion in Greek, where isosphia equal pebbles. If you have a certain number of pebbles, it equals a certain number. So if you tally up the numbers of certain letters, you get a certain sum. And that, God, isosphia is so talked about in a whole slurry of different texts. Um, there's a great book. I don't have it at hand right now. Uh, the Greek Kabbalah by Kieran Barry, another fantastic tech that really goes into the history of how the ancients, especially in, you know, classical Greece and Roman period Greece and Hellenistic period and so forth, you know, whether it's Christian or Gnostic or pagan, how they interpreted what the number symbolism of all these letters were, or even the shapes of the letters. And again, that adds whole different depths as well, alongside the oracular symbolism, the stoichaic, you know, symbolism and so forth. So then you can go through and you can analyze different phrases or different names of God using these various systems and see what that, what that gets you. Exactly. And like just how nowadays we have whole systems of numerology to like determine, you know, how long a person will live, you know, what their kind of life will be, what their life goal will be. The ancient Greeks did exactly that and more. Like there are all sorts of books and texts that talk about different divination systems about if you have person A and person B and they get into a fight, who will win based on their name? Or, you know, if person A is going to get married person b how will their marriage turn out again based on their names or if a certain person falls sick you know based on the number of the lunar day plus the number of their name you know what will the illness be like you know will they recover quickly will they not recover at all will they die will they you know live but with impediments you can tell all that sort of patients and they had really complicated forms of analysis along these lines back in the day which we have ample evidence of and can still use quite handily the only question is how do you write a name in greek well yes <laughs> <laughs> and that's a whole different problem <laughs> And uh, yes, making these things then fit into contexts with translation and all of that is is another a whole other ball of wax, I'm sure. And then there's there's also um, some of this then relates to I believe uh, a related system of numerology, the um, Pythmenes or the throne. Yes. So there were different analyses done, and Pythmenes really roots or thrones. So. Just how nowadays, let me back up. When we count numbers today, we use Arabic numerals. So we have a place value system. In the rightmost period, we have ones. In the second part place, we have tens. We have hundreds and thousands and so forth. The ancient Greeks didn't use that kind of number system. They had Greek numbers, or which were basically using the letters as numerals. So if you wanted to write the number, say, 144, 12 squared. You would have the numeral for 100, and you have the numeral for 40, and you have the numeral for 4. So you have 100 plus 40 plus 4. That's the sum of those three numbers, three letters, I suppose, in this case. But with Pythmenes, you don't consider the magnitude of the number. The Pythmenes of 100 is just 1. The Pythmenes of 40 is just 4. So in that case, alpha one, Yoda, 10, 
and Crow, 100, all resolved down to one. In other words, we see this system still used today, even in modern numerology systems. You know, if you have a number over, you know, 10, you just add the digits up, and then that's kind of your sum for the roots of that word. Mm -hmm. Same kind of system, same deal. And there were other systems that used this as opposed to just looking at the sum, the naive sum, I guess you can call it, of the letters as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that that then relates into some Pythagorean ideas of number and... and... (laughs) It goes on and on and on. And honestly, I wish I had more time to actually get deeper into the numerology stuff. I'll be honest, I don't like using numerology in general. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people do great analyses with it and not, you know, trying to dissuade anyone from going to them, you know, uh, for analyses, for help, for advice, and so forth. But something about it, it lacks the depth that, say, astrology has, in my experience. And it's kind of the same level as, like, you know, palm reading. You know, your palm is just your hand. It, you're born with it. It doesn't change. Likewise, your name doesn't change over the course of your life, unless you actually willingly you, you choose to change your name for any various reasons, which there's a debate over whether you should use your chosen name, your birth name. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> it, it's a headache in so many different ways. <laughs> but I want to do more research in numerology and how the ancient Greeks considered it and used it. But I would rather stick to the more the stoichaic stuff personally for my own practice. I just seem to get more out of it that way. Yeah. But even though that's my modern take on it, it's, it's definitely much more common in times to use the numerology for divination, like proper divination. So I think, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's, it's interesting to me, especially to see it as another facet of how, how many layers of meaning and how many ways that, you know, the Greek letter system was used. And I'm sure, you know, other linguistic systems also had that kind of um, embedded depth that was expected in it that we kind of have lost sight of because we don't really think of, I mean, our, the lettering system that we use today, I think you had a blog post on how it, I mean, no one, has anyone come up with something that would work with like our, our modern English language? Because I, I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like using the Roman alphabet in any of its forms, whether it's used for English or German or Icelandic, whether you want to consider accented letters as separate letters or double letters, like in Spanish, you know, if you want to use that as a separate letter, like I find lots of problems using the Roman script that just aren't there using the Greek script. Some people do use, you know, their own English, you know, sort of numerology, I know the Thelemites have one, you know, other groups have others. Good for them. I'm not going to say anything about them because they know what they're doing. I don't. I just don't feel so great doing it. Your mind may vary. Yeah. And the Greek, the Greek system does have an enormous amount, like you're saying, with the, with the Stoicheia, with the, if you want to use the, the 24 statements that we have that went with the letters themselves as, as a, a simple form. It's, it's very effective. I mean, myself and my coven, we have adopted um, sometimes using that Oracle of Apollo method of, of work. And it, it is remarkably effective, especially when you are working specifically with deities, you know, that may have been, may have been used to these types of <laughs> divinations. So that's actually one of the really neat things because so using the knuckle divination, each throw, each cast of the knuckle bones has its own oracular paragraph. 
And it also has a separate guard associated with each throw as well. Mm-hmm. But using Stoicheia, if you just want to stick to the Greek alphabet oracle and those 24 messages, those 24 letters, using Stoicheia, you can also associate individual gods to each of those forces. So for instance, using, again, I'm going to turn to Cornelius Agrippa's three books called Philosophy. In his second book, uh, he gives an Orphic scale of 12, basically a correspondence table that uses 12 different columns, each one being associated with one of the zodiac signs. He also associates each zodiac sign with a different Greek god. Aries with Athena, Gamma, oh, yeah, Aries with Athena, Taurus with Aphrodite, uh, Gemini with Apollo, and so forth. So we have uh, zodiac signs and gods equated. The planets, obviously, he's defined gods associated with those. The elements, we also have classical sources that associate, say, Hades with fire, Zeus with air, or sorry, Hera with air, uh, Persephone with water, Hades with fire, and Zeus, sorry, Hera's earth, Zeus's air. Comes mm, yeah. All um, but yeah, so you can associate each of those letters with a different deity, mm-hmm. and you can expand that into notions of courts of that deity. So, for instance, Apollo is famous for being the leader of the Muses. So he also associated the Muses with Apollo, and therefore also with Gemini. Hmm. Zeus, you know, one of the most famous myths about Zeus about his, you know, cupbearer Ganymede. So you can also associate Ganymede with Zeus and that sign and so forth. Mm-hmm. So you can have like whole ideas of what God do I need to propitiate in order to fix this problem? You know, draw a letter, get a god. It's pretty straightforward, actually, and it's really elegant in its own simple way. Yeah. So that was actually going to tie into one of my next questions, which is when you are working with this as a divination system, what are some of the the ways? I mean, do you have a set of, um, you know, personally, I've made my own set of stones and that's what I draw from. And and then that's just the way that I reference it. But I know that there are other ways of, of doing that, like with dice, if you don't have a set or things like that, which you describe. What is your go-to method? So it kind of depends on the context. If I'm at my shrines where I actually have my gods situated, where I make offerings and so forth, I have a set of dedicated knuckle bones I've specifically consecrated to Hermes there. Mm-hmm. And I use that for all the Greek gods because Hermes is the messenger of all the Greek gods. So it makes sense. I can use knuckle bones outside the context, but I have a set of essentially tabletop role-playing dice I already use for various kinds of divination. And I use specifically the D12, the dodecahedron, the 12-sided die for Greek letter divination. And the way I use it, it's kind of subtle. I take one die and I roll it twice. The Greek alphabet has 24 letters. So I divide that into first half and second half. The first roll of the die tells me which half should I be looking at. If it's odd, I look at the first half. If it's even, I look at the second half. The second roll of the die tells me which of those 12 letters in that half I pick. So if I roll a 9 and a 3, well, it's odd for the first roll, so I look at the first half. And then a 3 is a third letter of that first half. So that's gamma in this case. But I also flip the numbers as well to get a secondary letter a kind of hidden letter to kind of get like a background context. So if I roll a nine and a three, well, that gets me gamma for the upfront explicit letter. But if I flip those, I get three and nine. So that's the ninth letter 
of the uh, first side, which would be Yoda, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, Yoda. Yeah, Yoda. So that'd be like the implicit letter, the hidden subtext of what's going on. I see. That's very, very interesting. But that's just me using a 12-sided die because I'm a nerd. So another classical way of doing this is just getting a bowl of pebbles and just marking each one with a different letter. Like completely traditional. You use pebbles, you use pot shards, you use slips of paper. doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And it's just drawing letters out of a bowl. Simple, straightforward. Don't need to count. Don't need to tie anything up. It's easy yeah. that way. It does keep it very simple, which I like. <laughs> you just keep a little, it's like some of my you know, Nordic pagan friends, you know, they keep a satchel of runes on them. You know, this when they need guidance, they just draw one out at random. You can do the same thing with this. I um, I was traveling for performances. I was on tour and I forgot my set of runes. So I just made scraps of paper and then had like little teeny scraps of a scrap of paper set of runes that I always kept in my violin case. So <laughs> Just in case. Just in case, just take a little piece of paper. It, it absolutely helps. That was before I, I heard about the Oracle of Apollo. So I, I don't do as much traveling due to COVID these days. You know, I think that is, it is, it's very elegant in its simplicity. But as you pointed out, when you go into the Stoicaea, when you go into all these other forms of it, it has an enormous amount of, complexity and depth that you can that you can pull from it. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about that kind of it, it relates to many of these concepts is uh, um, the relations between these letters and time, um, the the calendars of ah. we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the Greeks, we're really talking about the Attic calendar, we're talking about Athenian stuff, because that's what we have the most evidence for. But yeah, I know. And <laughs> You are taking a deep breath. I know that the calendar stuff and, and all of that work, your your books on this are fantastic. They're amazing resources. I don't expect you to try to describe all of this in, in a podcast interview. But um, the lunar calendar or the, the, the calendar of the Greeks is very different from obviously our, our modern way of conceptualizing time, both you know in the 24-hour system as well as like calendrically our, our month system. Um, is there, could you just kind of give people a brief rundown for some people who may be listening that aren't as familiar with that? Uh, a brief. <laughs> okay, so I, I do have to give a disclaimer for this. I mentioned earlier how each individual city state had their own calendar, and that's true. When I was looking into ancient Greek ways of timekeeping and chronology, I, I found this one multi volume encyclopedic work on all the different calendars they had all the different ways of reckoning time civic and religious and farming across all areas of increase that we have evidence for it's a mess yes when we consider the ancient greek calendar we generally refer to the attic one it's true but again every city state had its own calendar if the attic ones came became popular let's be honest it was through colonization that's why um, yes, there was the Olympiad system of treating years, but that also wasn't always followed. It's a good way to kind of standardize things across all Greek history. But like, as far as Athens, you named years after the archons in power. Like, it really was complicated to keep time, or to keep track of time. And I initially wanted to use the idea of a lunisolar calendar. 
So the ancient Greeks used the moon as a marker of time, generally, generally being the keyword. There's no ever, there's never a definite answer for this, but you know, they started the new moon, you know, the day after the syzygy between the moon and the sun. So the first appearance of the moon and you had months of 29 or 30 days, give or take. And that would give you a year of 12 or 13 months because they aligned it with the summer solstice generally. And so if you were kind of like several weeks short, you threw an intercalary month to kind of make up the difference. And I used that originally as a basis for a Greek letter calendar. I looked at this, I tried using it, and it did work until I realized some major flaws in how I was considering it, unfortunately. So I threw up the whole atticness of it and just started from scratch using my own astrological influence system. But it's still a lunar solar counter. The basics are still more or less the same. So when I use this Greek letter calendar, well, a calendar, a lunar month has 29 or 30 days because, you know, one synodic month is about 29 and a half days. So if you want to round to a full number of days, it can be either 29 or 30. That's not 24. That's more than 24. So I recall that even though there are 24 letters Greek alphabet that are used, there are three letters that are obsolete. So you have digamma, originally a W sound, a copa, a kind of far back in the mouth K sound, and you have sampi, which we're not really sure the way it was pronounced kind of probably changed from dialect to dialect. But these letters were only ever really used for numerical reasons, and even then only by like accountants, not by a lot of common people who were literate back then. So we have these three obsolete letters, which gets us 24 plus 3 is 27. So I considered also, well, they didn't have weeks back then. For us, we have seven-day weeks. That's how we divide up a month into four weeks. So you have you know new to first quarter, first quarter to full, full to third quarter, and the third quarter to new. But the ancient Greeks didn't classify a month like that. Instead, they broke a month down to three 10-day periods. So you have the culmin- so you, you have the waxing period, so from new to about a third of the way full. You have culminating in the middle, which was the full moon, and you have the waning period. So if I wanted to break this out, if I so assume an ideal month is 30 days. That gives you 10 periods, sorry, three 10 day periods. If I break up 27 into three, well, that's nine plus nine plus nine. So I had this, I have this in place where I have each 10 day period getting eight usual letters, one obsolete letter, and one letterless day. So for instance, in the first period of the month, we would have alpha being the day of the new moon, the day of the first sighting of the moon, I should say, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, digamma, the obsolete letter for that 10-day period, zeta, eta, theta, and then a blank day. The way I reckon this, the way I use this system, is on the days that have the normal letters, those are the days for ritual. So on the day of Alpha, I make lunar offerings because Alpha is associated with the moon. On the day of Beta, I'd make offerings to Athena or I would do zodiac, zodiacal magic with Aries. On the obsolete days, because there's one obsolete day uh, for each 10-day period, 
I give those to the dead. Ancestors of kin, ancestors of profession, ancestors of religion, ancestors of the land or of culture, of society, and so forth. But I wouldn't do any other work. Mm-hmm. And then on the letterless days, nothing at all. You could consider it an unlucky day or consider it a day of rest, a weekend, as it were. But I just take that day to do nothing at all. And this system actually works fairly well on a month-to-month basis. Of course, there are months that have only 29 days, in which case I just lop off the last unlettered day from the last 10-day period. Mm -hmm. Boom, 29 days. Easy. That's the core idea of my uh, Greek letter calendar. It gets, again as you can probably guess, it gets more complicated the more you want to go. You can associate letters to months, letters to years, letters to whole eras if you want, based on how far you want to go in the future or the past. We don't have time to go over all that, but I have a whole free ebook about it. Yeah. It's like 600 some pages. It covers like the whole time period from like, I want to say 2015 to 2038 or something like that. It's free. It's on my website. You can get it. Mm-hmm. No, it's and it's very interesting because I think that, um, as you said, that the calendrical system in ancient times it was extremely complicated, and and the the whole lunar calendar for the Greeks, or at least again, every time I say it, the Greeks, it's really <laughs> well we know of the Attic calendar. I'm not I am not going to be referencing stuff from that multi volume tome that you mentioned. Um, it's a great read. Like don't, don't worry, sure you have the time. It's a fascinating read, but God, it's so dry and complicated. <laughs> well, in any case, they they in the attic calendar, or at least what we know of it, or what I'm familiar with, there were certain days of the month that were associated with various gods and things like that. But it generally only it only covered like one third of the month, if I recall, you know what it was, and it was mostly in the first half of the month. And and that's great. I actually I follow that in my personal practice. I follow some of that, and I, I make offerings specific for some of those deities on given days. Though I don't follow the entire um, monthly calendar, precisely because it does sometimes get into the the complex drift between our different forms of magic that we're practicing and and the ways that those ritual calendars would otherwise overwhelm us with too many things. <laughs> and yeah, like I like my system because my system will not match the attic system. Like, mm-hmm. well, like you have certain ca- festivals held on the basis in the attic system that just are on completely different days in my system. And that's fine. Like I'm not claiming to be an attic substitution. It is a calendar system of its own. Like completely depart, uh, you know, uh, detached and apart from any extant system we have. That's by design and by intent. So I don't want to replace the attic calendar for those who want to keep using it. By all means, keep using it if you want. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's the attic calendar also only assigns certain days. And I'm a completionist. I like knowing if I want to do this random ritual, you know, what's a good day to do it on without resorting to hoary astrology, without, or do, uh, sorry, electional astrology, you know, is there like do i have a dedicated time slot okay this day of the month boom done i have the decision already made for me but i'm a completionist in organization not necessarily a completionist in action (laughs) because yeah if you look at this calendar from the night point of view and you say every day has a letter every day has a bevy of gods how many at the time that's just it you don't Mm -hmm. (laughs) like maybe do one day a month for something big and then do something different the next month on a different day. And that's fine. Like, 
that's something for us all pinch to don't overwhelm ourselves. It's so easy to let our work run away from us that way. I don't know what you're talking about. I have never heard of such a thing. I am no. <laughs> Are you going to attack your own show? I apologize. <laughs> no, no, it is it is so appropriate. You have no idea. Um, but then uh, that actually, hmm, we're going to go away from Greek letters for one second, just because we're talking about calendar stuff and um, ritual ritual planning things. And I wanted this was a question that I wanted to ask you the first time you were on the show on my very first show, and I don't think we got to it. No, I'm sure we didn't get to it. Um, you have a, uh, a system of geomantic holy days. And I'd wanted you to kind of, if you could, I know we are, we're shifting wildly from the, from the Greeks now, but could you briefly des- describe, since we're talking about holy days and, and dedicated work and things like that, what those are to our listeners? So that was an experiment. And that experiment has largely come to a close for me. And okay. it's the idea was to have this whole geomantic spirituality. You know, if I had a religious path based in geomancy, the divinatory art, and expanded it significantly, kind of like what some Arabic geomancers do and how they tie it into Islam today, what would it look for me? Well, unfortunately, based on how we keep time, there's no easy way to divide the year into sixteenths. You know, twelfths, sure, not a problem. Quarters, thirds, easy. Sixteenths, uh, not so much. Mm-hmm. So I have this notion of, well, kind of taking inspiration from the pagan wheel of the year, you have quarter days and you have cross quarter days. That's eight. So we can kind of take that stem, just divide that up into, you know, divide that into, you know, halves again, you know, 16. Mm -hmm. Okay. But kind of associating a cross quarter day with a quarter day based on, say, element or, you know, temperament, you can associate, you can break that down from eight into four, you know, four elements. And well, four elements, geomancy is essentially an elemental form of divination, in my view. And well, each individual geomantic figure is based on the four elements, four rows of lines, two dots, two dots, one dot, one dot, and so forth. So I kind of tied into this lunch of you, quasi-Abrahamic mythos, um, looking at the four elemental angels, Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, and Uriel, and then considering on top of that, what would four geomantic patriarchs be? The four forebears of geomancy. And if you look at some of the myths and origination stories of geomancy, especially in Islamic and Arabic literature, you often see geomancy associated with Daniel or Adam, the first man, sons with Idris, you associate with Hermes Trismegistus, but who more biblically is considered to be Enoch. And so I kind of took those four figures, keeping Enoch and Hermes Trismegistus separately, and considered the four forebears of geomancy. And I essentially gave the four forebears to the cross-quarter days and the four elemental angels to the quarter days. And those are my geomantic holy days. That's really all there is to it. Um, and in what way would you say that it came to a close? What did you find about it that, that didn't work as well for you? I'm just curious. My practice space is kind of, I like the idea of it. It's a good idea and maybe it's useful for someone else. But even though I kind of, kind of rebooted myself within the system, my practice just shifted in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I just don't make as much use of that as I thought I would. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a good, it's a good system. I like it. It's just, I'm not getting mileage up at the time. So 
Mm-hmm. That's all. I, I'm not saying it doesn't work. It totally works. Um, but it's just, I'm not working that right now. So, okay. So in talking about, we've been talking about calendars. We've been talking about all the different, you know, meanings of different letters and, and stuff like that. When it comes to your, yeah, we're talking more about calendrical work in a sense. <laughs> um, it, how do you think about and conceptualize um, your process of, like you were saying, like looking for, for dates and times when you are going to do certain rituals, like, is there a form of divination that you go to in order to sort of divine when you should do workings? Or is that something that is based on time of year, just basically based on need? I'm just curious if there's a, a process to that. I should say yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it is a good bit of advice that we should all follow that before any working we do, any spell, any ritual, we should always divine ahead of time to make sure, should I be doing this ritual? Should I be doing this ritual now? Do I have everything I need for this ritual? And for some ceremonies, I do do that kind of ahead of divination for the stuff that needs to go right the first time. I make sure, you know, make sure I dot my I's, cross all my T's, make sure everything is in place, make sure all the spirits are happy before I continue to make sure I continue. I should say that. In general, I don't bother. <laughs> like, if I need to do something, I'm just going to do it. Like, in an ideal world, I would find an election, you know, according to the rules of electional astrology, to do a, find like a good, you know, solid stellar time make sure the plants are literally aligned the right way to get a good to ensure a good result of what i want to do or i would you know consider you know like my greek letter calendar you know consider the other influences consider uh historical evidence for when certain rituals were done at certain times of year or in certain contexts under certain needs i i would check that in a perfect world but when does life actually work like that exactly and so most time i just can't be arsed like i'm tired like what day of the week is it it's a sunday i'll do some solar stuff oh it's not sunday and let's see three hours from now is a hour of the sun i'll take a shower and get ready for that like that's oh yeah that's the most stuff like if i'm doing stuff of my own accord if i'm working with a god or if you know, I'm making a formal petition to like one of my Arisha or one of my shrine and gods or spirits, like I'll go to them and I'll ask, hey, I need XYZ, you know, are you willing to do this? And if so, when, how, and what do you need of me in order to do it? So like I'll leave the matter up to them. And if they say hold off, more than happy to hold off, because I have all the time in the world. If they say, let's do it now, they got the say, let's do it now. But that's if I'm doing stuff under and with them if i'm just doing stuff my own accord i get to when i get to it mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i, I should that is an important that. distinction because when you are you you have that system for when you are working with those specific deities or those spirits then they are in charge of the timing in a sense so yeah and i think that's important to keep in mind like for instance i have a couple ceremonies i need to have myself with my god family my religious community at some point I'm in no rush, but I've been told by Arisha that I need to have them done. The question is when. I could, you know, ascertain when by asking them, or I could just say, I'm going to wait until the need actually arises for it. Because a lot of these ceremonies, you have one shot. Like, once the ceremony is done, it's done. So I don't want to waste that. But other things, like, 
okay, I know at some point I need to have a formal party for my godfather's new Orisha. I'll probably save it, A, when I have the money, so I can actually throw the party. B, I'll probably save it for, you know, his initiation anniversary or the feast day of Adarisha, you know, in September, you know, which is a customary day to make offerings, petitions to Adarisha, so long as you don't have something more pressing that needs to happen before so then. So it really does depend on, like, the nature of the thing and, you know, is it in the court of a god? Is it in my own court? You know, how urgent is it? Because, you know, you could have this whole system for deciding when you want to do stuff, how you want to do it, but at the crux of it all, the only time you really have is now. Like, do you want to do stuff now or not now? And if you need something now, you generally can't wait for a future time. Like, if it can, wait for that perfect time. Or as perfect as you can get it. Otherwise, just do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's different, but it reminds me of my, my, the, the favorite parable of when was the first day. What was the best day to plant a tree? 50 years ago, when is the second best day today? It's, you know, it is, exactly. it is true that there are, there are perfect times, but sometimes you cannot wait for that perfect time or trying to wait for the perfect time would actually be to the detriment of, of yourself or whatever the cause is. <laughs> like with electoral astrology, you can like, electoral astrology gets really intricate and you can like try to plan out in advance, you know, the perfect election. For like, so I want to do a consecration for some Mercury talismans. What's a great time to do them? Five years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like a Saturn talisman. Great time for Saturn talisman. 16 years from now. I don't have that kind of time. Like, mm-hmm. I will do it next Saturday. You know, whatever. Like, a lot of the rules you have for electrical astrology, that you find like old texts like the Picatrix or any other number of electrical astrological texts, magical texts for creating talismans, they give you a best case scenario. You want to hit all these different criteria in order to get a good talisman. But in reality, you're not going to be able to hit all those criteria without waiting decades. So you try to hit the most important. Mm-hmm. And once you just focus on the most important ones and kind of like deal with the rest off the, on the side, then your opportunities expand exponentially. And that works great for specifically astrological magicians. I am not exactly an astrological magician. You know, I probably said it before here, you know, as a magician, I do astrology like how an engineer does math. Just enough to get by that I hired experts to do the rest. So for me, like, if I know an election that's coming up, I'll try to make use of it. If it's not like at two o'clock in the morning on a weeknight, you know, I'm, if that's like that, I'll have to think twice about it. But the way I kind of reckon it is people have been doing magic just fine without waiting for the perfect time. Timing is important. Never going to say otherwise. Timing is definitely important. And if you have the right time, it enables you to go so much easier and smoother with so much else. In lieu of that, throw more instance and prayer at it. Like, <laughs> that's kind of my rule. Like, if I can't work the perfect time, I'll burn some more instance. If I have a crappy time, I'll burn even more instance and spend even more time in prayer. And I kind of make up the balance that way. I build up the power for the ritual that would have been there if it were perfect time. But because it's not a perfect time, I need to put that extra energy in the ritual to get as good results. And it's kind of a trade-off. You know, if you have the perfect time to make a talisman, you don't have to do much more than just literally drawing the talisman out, maybe breathing on it if you want to be fancy. 
if you don't have the perfect time, that's where you break out the altar and the candles and the incense and like the 15 pages of prayer, and it'll still work fine. Mm -hmm. So it depends on what you want to do, how long you want to wait, what you want to put into it. It all depends. Yeah. But that also then comes down to the, the amount, it kind of relates to the amount of effort that you've put into learning about all these different details, because if you don't know what makes up the perfect time or, you know, all of these different things as that relates to the spirits that you're working with, then it's kind of hard to say that. And not to say that any of us ever reach the point where we have perfect knowledge. I know all of the correspondences now, but that you have that, that breadth of knowledge that at least allows you to plan for some of the, some mm-hmm. of the variables, which I think, yeah. And also this doesn't even touch on the fact that there are plenty of kinds of magic that are not astrological in nature mm-hmm. at all. And yeah. it's like, if something really needs an astrological influence, then yeah, I'll go with astrological methods of magic. But if it doesn't strictly need it, and if the a good time for it isn't available, I'll use a different method entirely that has no bearing on astrology whatsoever. Because there are whole religions and whole forms of magic that don't look at the skies, that don't look at the stars and planets, and just don't care. And that's fine. So it's a tiny difference for magic you can kind of keep in your other pocket so that when you can't reach for one, you just reach the other and you're still ready to go. Yeah. Um, so I had a question that kind of ties back to divination. You mentioned with the Greek divination, you mentioned how, you know, if you needed to know which God, let's say to petition for certain work or to have success with something, um, you could draw a letter and then know what God is associated with that. There we go. Um, are there other forms of divination that you might use that you like to use or ways that you combine divination into figuring out what kind of working you need to do for, for a goal or something like that? Is that something you go to geomancy for? Is that something that you just kind of figure out based on your knowledge of what you think would work well, or do you combine geomancy, uh, other divination with that sometimes? It really depends. Um, as you know, you know, not all divination systems are equal. Some division systems are better answering certain kinds of queries than others. Gmancy mm-hmm. is really good for a lot, but it's not good for everything, despite what some people might claim. Um, so with Gmancy, I can definitely use that as an inspiration for what kind of rituals needed, what mm-hmm. should it be targeted at, you know, where should it be done. I could totally do it that way. Greek alphabet oracle. I could probably get a good inclination. Um, of you know, drawing from a single letter what gods I appreciate or what force I need to focus on. The number could indicate you know how many times I might need to do it or how many things might be needed for it. Um, using a well-known proto-grimoire called the Karanides, it's basically this index of plants and animals and stones and things you can do with it arranged by letters of the Greek alphabet. So if I wanted to know the things to use for a ritual for something you do, I got the letter gamma. Well, I could go to the Karanides and pull out all the information associated with gamma. So for instance, uh, there's glaucs, a type of small white owl, which is associated with Athena. There's glaucos, a small common type of whitish gray fish. You know, gale, a weasel. So if I want to have like some weasel fur on hand, you know, in order to work with that. I could use glucosidae, peony, as a flower or an herb for my working. I could use nanthios, a hard granite-like stone, as a talisman base. 
all this can be done under the auspices of Aphrodite because she's associated with Taurus and Taurus associated with uh, Gamma or also Gaia, Earth, because Gaia is actually the name of the god in, associated with that oracle. So the number associated with Gamma is three. So I could do, say, three small little granite pebbles, you know, that I could dress around with peony flowers, uh, you know, asking Aphrodite to bless them in a working for whatever it was I might need to do. So, yeah, you kind of associate all these things together in a really complex, yet also satisfyingly complete way, mm-hmm. if you just dig in enough. And I kind of, now that I think about it, it's kind of a scenario with geomancy, in a way. With geomancy, you know, I just kind of tried to talk about this before, but it gives you the answer up front in simple, clear, high-level terms. And then you can dig in for as much detail that you want. It's kind of the same with this Greek, Greek alphabet oracle stuff. You know, it gives you the answer up front, and you can dig in as much as you want. And there's a little judgment involved. I mean, when you're asking the gods, the gods judge for you. You don't judge the gods. The gods give the answer. You just have to read into it more as me to. So, huh. I hadn't figured that out before. Interesting connection. <laughs> no, it's Thank a you. really connection <laughs> between those two forms. You're right, because it, it does... It, it has that same kind of depth of, of being able to go into it in the same way, just in different forms, obviously. Um, I want to switch gears. We, we're kind of in the geomancy realm. Um, and this is not, well, I'm tying it into divination because we can talk about Puera and Puella. But you wrote a recent blog post about um, like gender in hermeticism. And that instantly made me think of the other, another question that I wanted to ask you last time, which we didn't get to, which was um, a blog post that you wrote earlier about, you know, boy and girl about Puer and Puella and those like the conceptions of gender and and things like that, that are mixed up with those two um, geomantic signs. And, and in your recent blog post, you talked about that as it relates more to hermeticism itself and also then kind of through that a lot of ideas of magic um, that we have in the modern day. And this is a huge topic, which is, you know, fraught with all sorts of stuff, obviously. But Oof. I think it's an important conversation and I really appreciated that you brought it up. And I'm, I, it's something that um, my friend and I who are co-high priestesses of our coven talk about a lot. Because uh, we are we are Wiccans, we don't really generally use the word Wicca because we more use witchcraft, but it does come from that Wiccan basis, which has obviously a lot of, it did have a lot of baggage around, you know, gender ideas and male and female plurality and, and, and stuff like that. So it is something that we discuss a lot because we think it's very important to make sure that we have good understandings of this so we're not perpetuating stereotypes or perpetuating old like 19th century ideas, perhaps. Um, (laughs) but in any case, I wanted to kind of like, have you kind of speak a little bit about how you see that with hermeticism and, um, yeah, I'll just, I'll stop there. (laughs) So disclaimer, what I'm about to say only affects and is discussed within the context of classical hermeticism. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds, if not dozens different traditional systems that do have a system of gender or sex, based on how you want to view it, uh, whether you want to take a modern approach of distinction between gender and sex, or a classical approach that doesn't. A lot of systems do have a notion of divine feminine or divine masculine, a divine polarity or binary in that case. 
Good for them. Not going to touch them. Different topic entirely. When it comes to hermeticism, the reason why I wrote that series of posts about gender hermeticism and gender in the corpus hermeticum specifically, because I kept getting ticked off at how many people kept trying to insist that the hermetic law of polarity is a thing when it's not. Like, <laughs> it's BS from the Kabbalion. And as anyone who knows anything about me knows, I have no love for the Kabbalion. Period. <laughs> um, I don't get that rant. There's whole, I've written endlessly about it. I rant about it on Twitter and Discord. I don't need to say more about it, even though I want to. Um, but suffice it to say, one thing you should have with Kabbalion that crops its head up time and time again is that people insist that these hermetic laws are universals. They are laws when they're not. For me, something is a law is if it's general, if it can actually be seen in all things. And these people treat these things as if they are, and maybe some of them, sure. Cause and effect, sure, that's a law. Like that, That's something that you can actually see everywhere. Gender, I disagree. I don't see gender everywhere. Oh, well, male's active, female's passive. Why? Is giving birth passive? Tell any <laughs> woman. Tell, tell them. Oh, yeah. But, like, the notion that if you are even rooted in sex, oh, well, a man puts semen into the woman. I'm gay. Like, I'm not going to do that ever. Like, that's not a thing I'm going to do. If you want to start resorting to sexual symbolism in order to talk about spiritual things, it has to work in a way for me, for my experiences. And straight sex metaphors don't work for me because I don't have straight sex because I'm gay. I have gay sex where you have two men and you don't have a fork and a knife there. You have two forks. Like the whole system is different. I wouldn't say two forks, two chopsticks. The <laughs> metaphor is completely different then. It is not a universal, generalizable thing. And that's just for me. And I'm, you know, by all accounts, cisgender. What about for transgender people? What about agender people or genderqueer people? Where you even have notions of male or female, or you have some mix of both, or you have neither or something else entirely. These notions just don't apply generally. They are good and useful metaphors for most people. I'm not going to deny that, you know, cishet people are the most common people out there. Like, it's a thing. I'm not angry about it. But just because it's common doesn't mean it's universal. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's where I find the issue. Because people treat something that's common to be universal, and I don't see that working. So I wrote these series of posts, these two posts about gender and hermeticism, actual hermeticism, not Kabbalion hermeticism, um, to actually talk about where and how gender and or sex appears in the Corpus Hermeticum and the Stoian Fragments and other hermetic texts, or rather where they don't appear, yeah. and then expand on what they actually are doing when they are discussed. And it has nothing to do with spirituality. It's all about the body. I mean, yes, we do draw a distinction between gender and sex nowadays, but classically, they didn't really. Or if they did, not nearly in the same terms we do nowadays. For them, it was rooted in physical bodies. And we talk about stuff that doesn't have a physical body. We talk about stuff that comes before the notion of bodies were a thing. Mm -hmm. Well, then the notion of sex and therefore gender kind of goes moot. 
That's kind of where my position is. So, and again, it's still a place for useful debate. Like, I know I'm not the final word on it, even though I want to be. Um, I'm not the final word on that. And again, that's all just within the context of Hermeticism. Other religions, other traditions, not going to touch. They have it useful. Good for them. Great. But for Hermetic stuff, it has no place. So that was really the origin of that whole series of rants. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's it's so important. And again, that's just for me, because again, I don't see these metaphors of, you know, male, female playing out in my life or my work. Other people can try to map things to that metaphor. I won't. And honestly, I think it's a hassle to try to map everything to that male, female dichotomy. I think it's a hassle. I think it's a lot of wasted energy. We can just, drop it and just look at things in their own framework in their own context and you can get a lot further a lot easier a lot less spilled breath ink and energy well yeah it's 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 as if it's the the whole passive versus active has ever since i was like 12 years old and first reading my wicca books has bothered me because it doesn't it, there's there's so many issues there. I mean, let's be honest. The only reason why people say male equals active, female equals passive is A, because missionary sex is the only proper kind of sex there is, obviously. And B, because some old dude in Greece said that because they thought that women didn't have souls. And we've just been running with it ever since. I'm like, so sad that I don't. It's, it's still a problem for me. But you know, <laughs> I managed to get along somehow. Well, it's because your lack of a beard. If you had a beard, you have a soul. Uh, obviously. I forgot. No, but it is, it's a really, it's a, I think it's a fascinating um, discussion and one that's really, really important because like you said, you are talking, you know, specifically about the context of Hermeticism. And I think it is important to like define terms and say, this is not like we're trying to make universal statements that apply to all religions everywhere. But Hermeticism honestly has a, has had a huge impact on all, a lot of aspects of occultism and, you know, the modern occult world. So it's important to kind of um, dig into that. So I will be linking to those posts for people and encouraging people to read it. And if you disagree, to encourage, I guess, to argue with you, um, because I'm sure it'd be a fascinating discussion. But I just think it's important to to bring these things up. And as a, I'm a cisgender woman, it's not really my place to be trying to speak about things that I don't experience personally. But I think that all of us have some experience of this gender conversation happening. And when it's in, um, when it's in occultism, it's important for us to see how that impacts our divination, how it impacts our magic, how it impacts how we're thinking about and framing ideas and discussions, because otherwise, if we don't, we don't interrogate that, then it's just going to come through in ways we're not aware of, which is not good magic, honestly, (laughs) I think. Because you're tapping into all these myths and you know, very low-level understandings of the cosmos from a human perspective. And if you aren't aware of that, you're letting them – it's basically letting the shadow run free at that point. And mm-hmm. you do that at your own risk. Yeah, that's very true. And to tie it back to divination, um, because I, I did want to ask – you had a fascinating description of Puer and Puella – and one thing that you brought up was that those names, like I, I have always known those, you know, as Puera and Puella, but you pointed out, and it is in the Skinner book, like you said, that those names, there are many other names for those um, uh, signs. Can you just briefly describe what we're talking about there? So when we, talk, when we talk about geometric figures, it's common in a lot of English or Anglophone texts to talk about the geometric figures in terms of Latin names. Laetitia, Tristitia, Via, Populus, Puer, Puella, and so forth. And it assumes that there's this universal, only this one set of names. 
But historically, different texts often had different names, like Populus, 2222, was sometimes called Duplex Via, because Via was 1111. So if you have 1111 and double it to be another 111, you have 2222. Okay, sure, fair. But if you look throughout the history of Gmantic literature, you do see different names that kind of all touch on the same ideas. So if you want to rename the figures, I mean, it might be a little bit more difficult to understand you, but it's not like you're alone. I, you know, we assume there's one because of the, the centralization of a lot of occult literature and the standardization of a lot of practices nowadays. But that's largely an artifice of our modern society and culture and technology. Historically, were things a lot more decentralized. You had individual traditions spring left and right. And things could get a lot more varied a lot more quickly. So, okay, fine. If you have your own little naming system, by all means, have that. And in that light, I kind of considered what we might rename the figures Puer, Boy, and Puella, Girl. Because, it, again, it doesn't sit right entirely right or well with me that there's this inherent gender in the very figures themselves. I mean, we do see it play out in those terms because of how certain biologies and phenotypes do play out. Okay, sure, along with cultural notions that are very long-standing. So, in light of that, and also in light of how you know, our understanding of gender is changing and evolving and adapting, and how people are becoming increasingly freed from rather binding notions of those, what would different names these figures be? Well, in my you know, meditations and conflicts of figures and education and reading of these figures, Puer the boy, you know, reckless, brash, you know, all things a young boy would do, you know, Luke Skywalker in episode four. You know, the young hero marching off to save the world. You know, Dan, you know, Dan the Torpedo's full speed ahead. You know, the figure of getting stoked. And you have Puella, you know, who in my meditations is this, you know, woman, you know, my meditations, because that's just how literature talks about her, you know, in this temple house, you know, inviting me in, treating me well, you know, showing off all these nice things and leading me back out at the proper time. So to play off the words Puer and Puella, I have sort of renaming them to be hero and host, which I think describes the attitude and energy of those figures, what they do, just in a non-gendered way. And let's be honest, if we take a gendered approach to it, if we were to refer to a hero, we're probably going to use male pronouns. And while you have a host, we generally want to think of adding the extra syllable to that hostess. So I'm just really taking the gender out of it and getting to more of the heart of what that energy is. You know, avoiding the use of gendered language, but still maintain the accuracy of what it is I'm trying to describe. Because clearly, women can be heroes too, and men can be hosts too. Like, it's not about what you have in your pants. It's not about the identity you want to propose. It's about the job you're doing. It's about the energy you're bringing to the table. You know, whatever else doesn't really matter in that case, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of where I was taking that idea. And while I still conventionally refer to the figures as Puer and Puella to maintain that standardization and communicability with other people, in my mind, I'm still thinking nowadays more as host and hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, that that's a beautiful way of, of breaking down what, 
what the figure is, is, you know, saying. And as you said, in your meditations, those are the images that you saw. So there's, there's something that about those names that works. It has worked in our society for a long time, which means it's not like false or wrong, you know, to use them if it doesn't work, or maybe it is a little better to use your, your host and hero idea because it gives more, more play and more room for that. But it's, it's nice that then to have the flexibility to see it as both and to be able to choose one under contexts that make more sense. And I think it also gets more to the heart of what the figure is trying to say. And so we could do that with, you know, with many other, you know, forms of divination, I'm sure of like looking at what is the essence of this figure? What is it, what is it saying to us? And then we don't have to get wrapped up in necessarily the the cultural connotations of it, although they're there and they're going to influence what we see, obviously. Like we can't escape this context. Of like course, yeah. as you know, while I would love a system of magic and divination that's completely detached from gender, A, I know that gender really works for some people and maybe the system isn't great for them. That's fine. Stick mm-hmm. to gender if it works for you. I'm not gonna take it away from you. That's your thing. But also I am a product of my culture, a product of my time period, a product of my language, a product of everything that has produced the continuous conscious experience that is Sam Block. And it is my job to be aware of that, to learn about that. Even if I can't fully separate myself from that, I should at least try to not be unconscious of what's feeding into these images that appear in my head, the things I translate into images in my head or metaphors. So I can't, I don't think that I'm at the right point, whether as an individual or whether we are as a culture, to fully divest ourselves of gender. It is, for better or for worse, too ingrained in our cultural knowledge, in our consciousness, for thousands of years, across mm-hmm. many different cultures. It manifests, but all in different ways. I do want to point out, gender manifests in different ways different cultures, so it's not a universal there either. <laughs> yeah. But it still is there, and so it's still going to affect me in some way. I just have to be aware of that and then understand that that's my first instinct because of how I was raised. Now, what do I think? What do I interpret that as accounting for that, but also based on other knowledge I have since learned? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and my I approach, think, at least. Yeah. I think that also kind of goes back to whenever we're working with with gods that come from other cultures. I mean, we're talking about with the, the Greek letter system as well. It's like, well, we come from a certain culture. I, I am not a I'm not a Greek speaker, certainly not an ancient Greek speaker. Therefore, I have layers of my own culture and my own expectations that go into my interpretations, my way of dealing with the gods and these systems of divination. That's just there. I'm not going to get rid of it. There's no way that I can because it's it's who I am. But I can interrogate. I can try to understand and get you know further into the layers of it, which will then inform you know how I'm interacting with those layers in a better way. But to try to disassociate yourself from it would be kind of maybe not so healthy either. <laughs> it's kind of, I kind of want to tie this back to a good approach I have reading from old books. You know, reading the Corpus Hermeticum, which was written more or less between 100 to 300 BC, or sorry, CE, and, you know, in Roman period Hellenistic Egypt. You can read it as you are today without having ever read any other archaeological information or philosophical books. You can just read the Corpus Hermeticum and you can probably get a lot out of it. If you read it naively, you miss out on all the connotations of the word. You miss out on what was being said to the audience of that book as it was written in the time period and culture and geographic area is written. 
A lot of people nowadays will read about these seven governors in Book One of the Corpus Hermeticum and wonder, what are those? Well, to a person back then, it was immediately clear that they were talking about the seven planets. But because the word planet isn't explicitly used, and we're not used to thinking of planets as cosmic governors, that hit that I wouldn't say hidden, but metaphoric meaning may go over some people's heads. Just as you would not expect a teacher to come to your house to teach you, you would go to your teacher's house to learn from your teacher, to sit at their feet and to learn from them. Likewise, it's on us, it's our duty to go to the house of these books, of these systems, of these traditions, and learn within the context of that book, of that teacher, of that tradition, to understand from their point of view what it is that's trying to be communicated or taught. That way you're leaving behind your preconceptions and you're learning about things as they were taught, as they were learned themselves back then by people before you. That way when you go back home, you can integrate that and recontextualize it while keeping the message clear. Because if you have things going to your house first, you may not get the entire message. It's a naive way of learning. So I think being able to contextualize things properly in an appropriate way and then keeping the message clear from that, even if you have to recontextualize it later, I think that's a good approach to anything nowadays. Yeah, that is beautifully put. I really, really like that that description of that. That is so appropriate, I think. Well, um, we are reaching the the end of our interview and I wanted to um, wanted to ask you, we have we've gone through... <laughs> Crazy year. So we're taking this in, in May of 2021. Um, just in case people are listening way after. Yeah. Crazy, crazy year. And I, I wanted to just kind of ask you, I, I, you are a return guest. So I usually ask at the end, um, you know, what is some advice that you would, that you would give people that you want to leave people with? Like some, something that you think is helpful to people. Is there anything in particular that has changed for you over the last year or, would your advice be kind of the same? And, and if so, what, what would you like people to pay attention to in their magic or in their lives that you think is very helpful? I have no idea what I said last time, if I say anything at all about this. So I for, forgive me if I might repeat myself. But <laughs> let's take the last year into account. You know, for me, my experience, you know, I'm technically on hiatus from doing readings for people because I realized that I was getting worn down not just from like not from doing readings specifically, just from everything. The stress of the weight of the world, even in here, like my own little comfortable bubble of existence where I have been safe and responsible and diligent about making sure I'm okay. Like that alone, the weight of that has just seemed to increase and balloon. And so I had like just for my own mental health, just stop doing readings, stop doing client work people because even though I know I'm good at it, I can't do it right now. If I were to force myself to do it, I wouldn't be good at it. And I don't want to, you know, charge my you know, clients and just phone it in. Like, that's not what I want to do. It's disrespectful to them. It's disrespectful to my art. I'm not going to do that. And, you know, we all see these memes from Tumblr and Twitter about taking it easy and forgiving yourself because this is not a normal time. And it's true. It's not a normal time. We all have to make our own normalcy. We all have to recalibrate ourselves and adjust. We have to have both a short-term view and a long-term view. You know, consider California right now. California is what's said to be a period of drought. You know, constant wildfires and so forth. But this is happening year in, year out. 
the climate is changing. You know, rainfall patterns are shifting. You know, the geography has changed where there are no more floodplains and no more swamps to collect water. Instead, it all just becomes floods and goes out to sea, which leaves the ground barren. Is it really a drought at this point? Mm-hmm. You know, is, could you say that the Sahara Desert is a drought climate? <laughs> or is it just a desert? We may not think this is normal. And a lot of people have, you know, caught flack for using the phrase new normal. But I think it's important for us to recognize is a certain set of contexts or situations or circumstances, is that temporary? And if so, how do you accommodate that? Are they going to be long-term? If so, how do you accommodate that? Giving some thought to where we find ourselves today in our lives, in our social groups, in our professions, in our world, in our climates, in our countries, whatever, take some time for yourself and consider how are you doing and how are you doing it? And is that sustainable? Not just climate or economically or ecologically, but is that sustainable for you? Can you keep up doing things what you have been? And if so, how can you keep doing them to ensure that it's not going to be a drain on you? And if not, what do you need to change? How long do you need to change it for? And then always try to find your own balance. And, you know, that phrase, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. It sounds so dire, but still such good advice. You know, try to find your balance. Always find your balance first and foremost. And then once you have that, see, is that a good way to keep your balance? And if so, how can you rebalance to keep your balance later? Probably got a little high, you know, high level and heavy handed there at the end, but no, no, that's kind of like my own experience the past year. Yeah, no, I think that's that's excellent advice, and and I, I'm sure people will think a lot about that. I will. I know that it's we've had so sorry, but there's there's always more to do, especially in in coming to our own sense of balance. So. Mm Well, thank you, Sam. I have, thank you. As I, as I knew I would, obviously, I really enjoyed this and I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. It has been an honor and a privilege and a pleasure. So thank you. Wait a second. I'm not letting you go until you tell us how do people find you? And can you just tell us if you have anything coming up? You said that you're not doing readings right now, but um, I know that you are doing some, some courses and I wanted to know if it, basically people just find you on the digital answer site yes so my blog my website uh https colon slash slash digital ambler.com uh on you can find my ebooks you can find my two free courses there are some agreements you have to agree to but beyond that they are free of charge free of cost um I'm not doing readings right now, but once I'm ready to do so again, I'll make an announcement there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of my home base online. You can also find me on Twitter at Polyphonies. You can find me on Facebook, Digital Ambler. Um, yeah. yeah, that's you can find me online. All right, that is wonderful. And I'll link to all of that. So thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you again. Everyone do well. So thank you again.
Christ the earth.